Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning there, the children can head upstairs to the children's chapel. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. We're continuing on in the same series as Pastor Ron has been leading us in. Stand firm. His grace is enough. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. There's a story that happens at the end of the 19th century. Um, there's a English city boy who, with his family, travels out to the countryside in Scotland. And there's a lake there, and the city boy... Uh, takes off his clothes and jumps into the lake and begins to swim. And as I'm sure city boys maybe do, swims as far as he possibly can out into the middle of the lake and uses all of his energy and begins to drown, has no energy to get back to the shore. And so he begins to holler out and cry out. And just off of the of the lakeside a little ways uh, is, a, is one of the farm kids from the Scottish farm country there, uh, he rips off his clothes, leaves the field, jumps into the water, and saves this city boy, saves him from drowning. His family is ecstatic, as any family would be. Um, he is saved, and, and they, they celebrate with the farm kid, and they head back to the city. Several years later, um, it just happens that these families connect again. They meet up again. And as they're sharing through what has happened in their life to this point and what's going to happen in the future, the, the farm kid uh, wants to go to medical school, but their family doesn't have very much money and they're not going to be able to afford for him to go to medical school. And so, so the city boy, his parents are, are, have lots of means. And so they, because of their gratefulness for what had happened in the lake years previous, uh, they provide the funds that it takes for this city boy to go to medical school. Well, the city boy uh, goes to medical school, becomes a physician, um, and becomes a bacteriologist. And in 1928, uh, this city boy, or this country boy, Alexander Fleming, uh, discovers penicillin. And uh, so the boy who saved the city boy has his way paid to medical school, discovers penicillin, and is becomes quite famous. The city boy, though, also becomes quite famous, has quite the renown. City boy goes through school and during World War II contracts pneumonia and in fact is in the hospital on his deathbed almost, almost to perish when he is saved by penicillin. And that is how Alexander Fleming twice saves the life of Winston Churchill, the great statesman in World War II, British Prime Minister. 
That's an amazing story. As I read that this week, I thought, what, what an amazing story of being saved. Alexander Fleming saves Winston Churchill twice. It's a great story. But it pales in comparison to this story for me. Last summer, my family and I, we were camping at a, at a campground that had a, a pool and a hot tub. And uh, the hot tub had a ledge around the side of it, except for one side didn't have a seat in it. It was over four feet deep in this hot tub. And my daughter, Josie, thought she would jump in the hot tub, and she did, right in the spot where there was no seat. And uh, we were kind of all over the place, and it took me a minute, maybe maybe more than that, to get to the edge of the hot tub to see her bouncing in there with her eyes wide open and frantic look on her face. Um, in fact, even right now, I have chills thinking about seeing her there, thinking that she was not going to make it. Uh, it was no big deal. I jumped in. She was fine. Everything was fine. But I don't care that Winston Churchill was saved twice by Alexander Fleming. I care that Josie Dignan was pulled out of the hot tub by her father. And you probably can think of stories just like that, where something tragic almost happened. And you were a part of, maybe, saving someone. Or you saw an actual saving happen. And your heart began to beat wildly. And even as you think about it right now, you're thinking about it right now, and you can have goosebumps thinking about how close it came to a tragic ending. And yet, all of those stories, Winston Churchill's story, Josie Dignan's story, the story that you have, they all pale in comparison to what Peter wants us to know right here. He's talking about the saving of our souls. In fact, if you look up just a verse, a verse from what we read in chapter 1, verse 9, Peter says that he's obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation, the saving of our souls. What Peter's trying to express to us here in chapter 1 of his first book is that there is an importance, there is a greatness about the salvation of our souls. There's a greatness to our salvation. Peter gives us several reasons that we're going to look at in this passage as to how we can know the rationale that we can know about the greatness of our salvation, some ways that we can know how great our salvation is. And we're going to look at those in just a moment. But before we dive into that, I think first we have to back up a little bit and we have to look a little bit at why is our salvation so great? What are we being saved from? And, and for most of us in this room, this is going to be a review. But I think we have to know, in order for us to know how great our salvation is, we have to back up and say, what are we being saved from? And so that's where we start today. And there's three things I want to share with you real quickly in this point. The first thing that you have to know that you're being saved from is the pervasiveness. The pervasiveness of sin. Sin is a very real part of everything that we know and everything that we understand. And it's so much so that we can't even think outside of that picture. It's because of sin. It's because of sin that right now you're seated inside this building being led by a pastor, that we're all wearing our Sunday best. It's because of sin that we are here. Without sin, 
without sin, we would be seated, maybe, naked, in the garden, being led by God Himself. We wouldn't need buildings. We wouldn't, it would be perfect. Adam and Eve did not meet in a church. It's because of sin. Sin colors everything that we're doing here is colored by sin. Sin is not just a part of, of every, of every bad thing that we know. Sin is a part of every good thing that we know. I hope to leave from this place today and head into Aberdeen and go to Arts in the Park following church today. And I hope to eat meat on a stick today. I can tell you, Adam and Eve did not eat dead meat on sticks before the fall. What seems great to me, being able to eat meat, I love beef, what steak is great to me, that, that is evidence of sin. Before sin, there was no death. There was no beef. There was no ribeye. There was no corn dog before sin. Put that in your notes today. Corn dogs are a result of sin. There's a pervasiveness of sin. It's, it's about everything that we know. In my middle school youth Sunday school class this year, we talked about an illustration in our curriculum that, that has helped me tons to think about this. Um, and many of you will remember this, this happening in 1986, in April 1986, in Chernobyl, in Russia, there was a, an explosion at a, at a nuclear power plant there. A, the, the equivalent of 20 nuclear bombs went off and exposed all of that area. It's now in Ukraine. All of that area was exposed to radiation. And there's all kinds of, you can read the history about it, there's all kinds of stories about what happened to that. But, but in our Sunday school curriculum, one of the things that it talked about was, was that Everyone that, that lived in that area or, or still lives in that general vicinity, nobody can live right, right where it happened, but in that general vicinity, um, they suffer from, from thyroid cancer because of their, the intake that they have of the radiation. And, and they can't get away from it. It's, it's in the ground, and so the, the plants that grow produce that radiation inside of them. And so even if they were to, to, uh, to ship in all of their food, they, they still would have to burn the wood to heat their homes, and that would put the radiation into the air. And, and so the idea is that it's just even the air that they breathe has radiation in it, and they, can't, they cannot escape from it in that area. That's the picture of sin that is a part of our world very air that we breathe, every single thing that we know is colored by sin. Now God, in His grace, helps us to see and understand great things and things that come from God, but even our vision of those things and our understanding of those things are colored by sin. Sin is so pervasive in our life and in our world. It's inescapable. Second thing, though, that helps us to understand our need for salvation is the idea that there is for us, because of the pervasiveness of sin and because of our personal sin, there is a separation for us from God. I think we understand that this morning. I don't think that's something new for us. We are separated from God because of our sin. God is perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. He is sinless and sin-free. And He cannot have sin in His presence 
And because sin is so pervasive for us, because sin is a part of, even before we're born, sin is a part of who we are. We are sinners. Because of that, there's a separation between us and God. That separation from God is is a terminal disease. It cannot be cured. And we must be healed. We have a need to be saved because of our separation from God. But thirdly, there's not just the pervasiveness of sin or the separation that we have from God because of our sin, but there's a judgment that comes because of our sin as well. We don't just have a terminal disease that needs to be healed, but we have a terminal guilt that needs to be judged. We are guilty. God is a perfect judge. He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot be righteous without also being just. And truth be told, we want that. We want justice from God. We want justice from God. God says there is a penalty that must be paid for sin. The salvation of our souls, what we're about to talk about, is that Jesus paid that penalty for us. And so now we can plead, because Jesus paid the penalty for us, we can plead that God will be just. That His justice, that His justice will be found on Christ. In fact, we don't want it any other way. We don't want there to have to be some other, some other penalty that needs to be added on to what Christ has already paid, what Christ has already fulfilled on the cross. We want God's justice to be seen in that. We want God to be just. So what are we saved from? We're saved from the pervasiveness of sin. We're saved from our separation from God. We're saved from the judgment of God. And in verse 8, Peter tells us what we're saved to. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with, this is what we're saved to, joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's the outcome of our faith. It's the salvation of our souls. That is how we jump in now to verse 10. Peter starts it by saying, concerning the salvation, that's what we've just talked about, concerning the salvation from God's wrath, from the judgment that comes from our sin, he gives us five things real quickly this morning that we're going to look at that help us to understand and see the greatness of this salvation, the greatness of our salvation. Here's the five things quickly. He tells us about the prophets who anticipated our salvation. He tells us about God who predicted it. About Christ who suffered for it. About the prophets and the apostles who preached it. And about the angels who longed to see it. Let's look first at verse 10. Concerning the salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They searched and inquired carefully. These words, these words that Peter uses, these Greek words that he uses, searched and inquired carefully, those are not lazy words. Those are not 
Let's sit back and wonder about it. Let's sit back and meditate on it. Let me just think about it for a little while. Those are not lazy words. The search and inquire, the Greek words, the connotation that comes from those Greek words are active words. They are let's get after it words. The idea here is that the prophets, they longed, they yearned, they worked for it. They were very intentional about trying to understand and know God's ultimate redemption plan. All of the prophets. All of the prophets. All through the Old Testament. From Moses to Malachi, all of the prophets had a great fascination with the promises that God gave for a Messiah. The prophets knew the promises. And they knew that God was the keeper of all of the promises. But what they longed to know, what they longed to understand, was what would be the fulfillment of those promises. What would be the fulfillment that God would provide? Who would do it? That was their longing. Imagine with me the prophet Isaiah. As God pressed on his heart and on his mind to write these words which come from Isaiah 53. As he wrote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine Isaiah writing those words? And as he wrote those words, as he thought through, as he searched and inquired about what God would have him write, he had to be thinking, how long, God? How long until this happens? Who will be the one that fulfills these words? When can we expect it? Will it happen in my lifetime? Those had to be. Those had to be the prayers of the prophets as they would remember the promises of God. Throughout the books of the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, we read prophecies from these men who long to see the fulfillment of the promise. In fact, Even the last Old Testament prophet, which we actually find in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he longs to know for sure. In fact, he sends some of his messengers in the New Testament. John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus to say, are you really the one or should we look for another? And Jesus, in God's sovereign plan, Jesus fulfills another prophecy by replying back to John's messengers saying, look around. The blind see, the lame walk, the sick are healed. The prophets longed to know who would fulfill the promises of God, the promises of a Messiah that was to come and redeem his people. They searched, they inquired, they studied. One other interesting thing here. Peter tells us that the prophets who prophesied, they have prophesied about the grace of That was to be yours. They prophesied about the grace. One of the things that I read in some commentaries this week, which was interesting to me, 
is that there's a distinction here between the prophets prophesied about the action of the salvation of our souls. The commentators made a distinction between saying that the prophets didn't just prophesy about that one day a Messiah will come and one day he will, will bear our sins on his shoulders and by his wounds we'll be healed. It wasn't just the day of atonement that they prophesied about. It was the grace that surrounded the entire act. What the, what the prophets were prophesying about was the motive, the idea behind salvation. Not just that it would happen on one day, but that God is gracious. And God in his grace has a salvation plan for us. Not just an atonement day, not just a death on the cross day, but the prophets said there's God, God in his graciousness, through his grace, has a plan for you to be saved. It's more than just an act. God's grace is, is on display through the whole process. So the prophets anticipated it, Peter tells us. But then he goes on to tell us, not only did the prophets anticipate it, but God declared it. God declared it. You can continue reading there in, in verse 11. The prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired carefully about it. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Spirit of Christ has a prediction. Now the idea of the prediction here is not a hopeful prediction. It's not a, I predict that the Miami Heat will win the series in seven games. It's not that kind of a prediction. It's not even a calculated guess. It's not even, I've looked at the numbers, I've figured out the percentages, and, and we can see because of the way the numbers bend that we can predict something to happen. That's not the prediction that Peter's talking about here in, in verse 11. Instead, there's no guesswork in this prediction. This prediction is a statement. It's a statement that needs more clarity for us, granted, but it's a statement nonetheless. And the statement that Peter makes here is that there is a prediction, and that predictor is the Spirit of Christ, Peter writes. Now right away, we begin to think the Spirit of Christ, that must mean the Holy Spirit, and it does. But Peter makes a distinction if you read through just these three verses. He says here that the prophets prophesied about who the Spirit of Christ was impressing on them. And then later he talks about that the apostles were strengthened by the Holy Spirit. He makes, he makes a distinction there. He, he calls the same thing two different names. Why would he do that? Why would he say Holy Spirit, one verse later, but Spirit of Christ here? There must be a difference. There must be a difference in their roles. And there is. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament is a guide, is a helper. He lives in the hearts and souls of believers. It's His job to continually remind us of the salvation that was purchased on the cross on our behalf to the glory of the Father. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, as Peter refers to it here, has the same job, but he has a different approach. In the Old Testament, the primary focus was to point to the one that was still to come. To point to Christ. 
The Holy Spirit's job is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit's job. In the New Testament, he says, look back at Jesus. Look at Jesus on the cross. He's the one that made a way for you. He is the salvation for your souls. The Holy Spirit's job is to say, look to Jesus. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament before Jesus comes. The Spirit of Christ is the one that impressed upon the prophets, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Only they didn't know that it was Jesus. They just knew that there was a Messiah that was to come. That God was to provide that. So in the Old Testament, the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And Christ is there as well. We know Christ was there even before the foundations of the world. The Bible is very clear in that. And so God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, they're all together. They're three in one. And the Bible tells us here, Peter tells us, that the Spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. God declared it. He predicted it. The Spirit of Christ, Jesus, and God, they're together there, and they predict the salvation of our souls. They declare it. I think it's important for us to, to see that picture of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, together, before even the foundations of this world, predicting, declaring, making a statement, declaring, the process of our salvation. There was no convincing Jesus later. God didn't come and say, I have this plan, I wonder if you can buy into it. Jesus was there declaring that this would happen. I will go. I will make a way. Prophets anticipate it. God declares it. And then Peter tells us that Christ suffered for our salvation. The Spirit of Christ was in them and was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think we have a pretty good understanding of the physical torment that Jesus would have gone through. The physical pain and suffering that Christ endured previous to and on the cross. But Peter doesn't gloss over that here. He could have said, he could have said that the Spirit of Christ predicted in the, in the prophets that Christ would come and make a way for us or, or that Christ would come and provide for us salvation of our souls. But he doesn't say that. He says that the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. Peter wants us to know that our salvation came with a cost, a very physical cost. Christ suffered for us. Peter also says that he suffered for us, but then there's that there also are subsequent glories, subsequent glories that Christ earns on the cross. Now, throughout the New Testament, when they talk about the glory of Christ, they talk about his death and then his resurrection and ultimately his exaltation. That's all tied together in the glory of Christ. And so for Peter, commentators have said this week as I've read this, that Peter, he makes a distinction not just between the glory of Christ, but subsequent glories, plural. That there is more than one glory of Christ. One glory is his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, his 
back to ascension back to the Father in heaven. But the other glory is the establishment of His kingdom in the hearts of believers. That we, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, are the kingdom of God here on earth. And while we never will become the perfect the perfect example of that here on earth, because again, the pervasiveness of sin that colors everything that we know or see or do, that the Spirit of God early on before the foundations of the world impressed on the prophets that Christ would suffer and that we would become part of the kingdom of God. Early on, that prediction was made. The prophets anticipated it. God declared it. Christ suffered for it. And Peter tells us that the prophets and the apostles, they preached it. It was revealed to them that they were not serving, that they were serving not themselves, Peter says, but you. And the things that they have now been announced to you, both through those in the Old Testament and those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit that sent from heaven. Peter tells us that both the prophets from the Old Testament and the apostles, strengthened by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, were sent to preach about this salvation of our souls. Their mission was to declare to us the greatness of our salvation. In the Old Testament, the words of the prophets would have given comfort, they would have given clarity to the people of that time, but Peter makes it very clear that they were not just words that were to give comfort and clarity to the people of the Old Testament, the people of the time of the prophecy. But Peter says that they were serving you as well. They were serving us. The prophets declared the greatness of our salvation by declaring the sufferings of Christ, the promised Messiah, so that we would better understand the salvation of our souls, the greatness of our salvation. The New Testament apostles through the enabling and the power of the Holy Spirit, are preaching the same thing. In fact, if we had time this morning, we would go back and look at Acts, at some of the messages that Peter specifically shared through the power of the Holy Spirit and how the church would grow and believers would come to faith. That message that the apostles preached was so that we would better understand the greatness of our salvation. So not only did the prophets anticipate it, God declared it, Christ suffered for it, prophets and apostles preached it, but he closes this passage, this last phrase in verse 12, is that the angels long to look at it. The angels long to see it. This is the best picture of of the five that we're talking about today. This for me, personally, is the best picture. The angels long to see it. There are heavenly beings that are with God, that know God, that, that have never been a part of earth and do not have the, the pervasiveness of sin that we have that colors everything they do or everything they see or everything that they know. They know God perfectly. They know the greatness of God. And when they look and see us and they see the pervasiveness of sin that, of sin that colors everything that we know and do, they, they can see better than anyone the dichotomy of what that is. God is perfect and holy and just and they understand that and know it and see it. And we are so not that. We are sinful. And they see that separation. 
And the Greek word that they use, that, that Peter uses here, to, that the angels long to see it is that they, they don't just want to take a passing glance. That's not the, that's not the idea behind the word. It's that they want, they want to stoop down and stare at it. The greatness of our salvation. The angels see the difference. They see this perfect God and these sinful people and, and they want to see how God reconciles that together. They want to see that process. They want to understand it because, because from what they see, there's no way that can happen. God is so great and we are so not great. And the angels want to stare at it. They long to see how God is going to reconcile all of this together. How is God going to use the sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories to bring this sinful people back to Himself and adopt them in to His family? We can know the greatness of our salvation because even the heavenly beings are in awe of what God is doing in us. So where does that leave us today? How do we take those things from here? How do we take what Peter's telling us here in verses 10, 11, and 12 and turn that into something that we can walk out of here with? Is it important today for us to know that our salvation is great? Yes, it is. It's important for us to know that our salvation is great. It's honoring, I believe, to God for us to know that. I think it's important for our joy. That's what Peter talks about before this, that, that we have an inexpressible joy. It's important for our joy to know that our salvation is great. It's vital for our hope to know that our salvation is great. But more this morning than knowing about the greatness of our salvation for you, more than just knowing that our salvation is great, I want you to know that our salvation is here. It's been purchased on the cross. God made a way for it to be completed. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and attested to us by those who heard it, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How shall we escape, he writes, if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape? That's where we come to right here as we close this morning. How can we escape if we neglect this great salvation? God has provided for us an unbelievable a remarkable, a great salvation that prophets anticipated 
that God declared for us, that Christ suffered for, that apostles preached about, and that angels long to see how it will all work out. It's important for us to know that greatness, but do not neglect it today. Salvation is great, and salvation is here for us today, found in the person of Christ and His death on the cross. Let me pray for you as we close this morning. God rescues our great stories as we started today of of savings are great. They're important for us. We love them. We rejoice in them. And yet, God, the story that we're talking about today, the story that Peter tells us about in chapter 1 is Every other, every other rescue story, every other saving story pales, God, into comparison to this. The greatness of our salvation. The salvation of our souls. The salvation, God, of my soul. And your word tells us that we are not to neglect that salvation. So I pray that you will be with each one of us that's here this morning, that God, you will help us not to neglect it, not to overlook it, not to bypass it, not to go around it, not to pay attention to it. That God, you will help us in those times that we do not want to rest there or hope there, that God, you will help us not to neglect it, but that you will help us, God, to yearn for it to love it, to hope in it, to look only to Christ for the salvation of our souls. God, let us not neglect it, but let us celebrate it. Let us rejoice in it. Help us as we go from this place this morning to rejoice in the salvation of our souls and the greatness of the plan that you, from the beginning of time, worked for our good so that we might be reconciled to you. We pray these things this morning in your name. Amen.